0: hi everyone this is yet another debate discussion we took a break from the last debate which was nice i mean <laughs> i enjoyed not having to talk about it to be honest um But last night I did watch, and uh, I know, Richard, you watched as well. So we're going to talk about the debate. This is going to be really casual. Um, Nothing was, you know, pre-planned or whatever. Uh, But I I do want to get your thoughts and all of that. But before we do that, how's everything going?
1: Uh, You know, uh, I guess, you know, still kicking. So uh, that's always a plus in my book. And uh, so, uh, hmm. I don't know. I uh, generally my I've been running a bunch of emotions just uh, since the debate and prior to the debate and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I guess just generally I uh, had to spend some time with some friends and that was nice. So and uh, got some more friend time coming up. So people that I haven't been able to make time to be able to see in a while, I'm going to be able to see and like family stuff and do that thing. So that's that's good news for me. So I'm happy about that.
0: Yeah, and also we didn't talk uh, until. Well, this is our first first recording of the new year, right?
1: Mm, it is.
0: I think yeah, because we had a bunch of like December recordings. Um, <laughs> I feel like December was like whirlwind. I feel like we, I think we put out four podcasts in December, which is like a record for us because usually, especially lately. Um, you know, like coming back on the post hiatus schedule, it's been hard to do at that many recordings. I know that's the regular for some people's uh, podcasts, but you know, um, they have like whole crews and aren't doing like as much work in the same way. That's like their only job, you know, to do uh podcast. So it's much easier for them to just put out a podcast a week or more in some cases. Um, but in our case, you know, we've got jobs, day jobs, night jobs, weekend jobs, other stuff going on. Uh, So it can be difficult. But on that note, I wanted to, first of all, Give a huge thank you to all of our new patrons and old patrons, actually, who hung on and like been on board with us this whole time. Um, and also a big, big, big thank you to people who've been promoting Left POC. I feel like we've gotten a lot of new um, people on Twitter following us and social media in general. Um, and we've been getting a lot of really nice shout outs, which I appreciate. Um, and that's something obviously that anyone can do. You know, it doesn't cost any money. Um, but even then, if you do have a dollar or more, we appreciate it going to our patreon and that's patreon.com slash left POC um, I need to update the form or not the form but the the you know release document that I put out about how where our money goes just to give a few more details um, but just as an FYI like all of our money goes back into this podcast um, so we pay our guests. We also make a donation in the honor of our guests um, for the organization of their choice. And um, we have an assistant named Ariadna, who's amazing. We pay her for all of her hard work, Um, Right now she's been doing transcripts like crazy. um, So we really appreciate that. And she does a little, um, sometimes I give her these like weird projects from like research this person or like look this stuff up. Um, But she's always super responsive and amazing. um, And I want to get her on the show too. I've been very bad about that, but um, one day you all will meet Ariadna uh, via the podcast and she can talk about her politics and where she stands because she's also of course a very ardent leftist Um, and she's great. And then So in addition to that, uh, we also pay for web storage and site storage and things like that. Um, And of course, taxes, because unfortunately, Patreon funding is taxed, even though we don't make a ton of it. um, We do have to pay Uncle Sam so they can use it to like go kill people in other countries. So um, that, Mm. (laughs) unfortunately, is the fate that we have to deal with with our taxes. Um, But hopefully in the future, our taxes can start going to things that benefit the poor and the people who need um, assistance and healthcare and all these things. But we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, and then the other place that the funding goes, obviously, is back to other podcasts. So at Left POC, we support um, several other leftist podcasts whom, whom we feel are doing like really amazing work um, and activist work as well. And so, yeah, basically, and, oh, I forgot, Richard gets paid also for his work. <laughs> Richard is Which not up here working for free. Um, <laughs> Richard also, also gets a cut.
1: I'm immensely um, grateful for, by the way, just to sneak that in and continue.
0: Yeah, no, but it's like, I know it sounds silly, but it's important. Like these things are important to first of all, lay out, I think just for the sake of transparency, um, because a lot of podcasts are making bank and there's no transparency as to where their money goes, but usually it goes to like beer and Coke and whatever else, <laughs> um, which is fine. You know, like they spend their money how they want to spend their money. Um, but here at left POC, we really believe in like giving back to the community and not just with our podcast itself, uh, but also, you know, through the funding that we get, um, I have not uh, gotten any money from left POC yet, but I would like to get to the point where I can receive a little bump. Uh, But we, you know, again, I think just on principle, um, the purposes of the podcast have to do with the community and, and thinking about, you know, leftists of color and that history and whatnot. And so, Off the jump, I knew that I wanted the model of the like the financing model of the podcast to reflect a lot of the thoughts that the people we read about and talk about uh, have. So, again, thank you all so much. Anyone who's made a donation up to this point, we appreciate it. Even if you haven't been able to stay on with us, we still appreciate what you were able to contribute. And of course, we appreciate those of you who may not have the finances to donate, but who've definitely done your part in terms of sharing and liking the podcast, telling other people about the project as a whole, um, and also leaving us reviews on iTunes and whatnot. So again, thank you all so much. Um, in terms of how I'm doing, um, I, I did put an announcement about this on the Left POC page for those of you who may not follow my personal account, which is at Muse Wendy on Twitter, that um, I am super pregnant um, and have a baby popping out any minute now. Um, she's set to come towards the end of February, uh, just because I unfortunately have to have a C-section, but no just to C-section babies or mothers who have to have C-sections, but just like, it's kind of crappy because they cut you open like you're a magician's assistant um, to get the baby out. So that's that, but, uh, but in general, we're looking at around February 20th, uh, somewhere around there. So I've, kind of been working on a contingency plan I've not been the best at it because it's hard for me to even stay awake some days um, because I've been dealing with fatigue and whatnot uh, but I do I do want to have um, you know like a backup plan in place so y'all may not hear from me um, that much in the coming months we'll see uh, but I definitely know that you know Ariadna and uh, Richard are gonna try to hold down the fort while I'm gone Um, because, you know, babies are unpredictable and unfortunately it's hard to conduct interviews when you have a baby who needs to be changed and fed and who's crying and, you know, God knows what else. So, um, just giving y'all a heads up, uh, if you don't hear from me, um, after the end of February for a few months, (laughs) that's what's going on. I'm raising my daughter. Um, you know, you know how that works. Uh, anyway, that's enough from me. And, um, I want to get into this debate so we're gonna talk about the Warren Bernie drama and whatnot later on but I just wanted to start by saying that for me personally I was actually surprised that CNN of all of all channels decided to focus quite a bit last night on foreign policy and environment um, I wouldn't necessarily say that their framing was great um, the foreign policy questions or the energy questions. And it's funny because in the beginning when I started watching it, um, and by the way, I was on drugs when I was watching it, not the fun kind of drugs, which (laughs) I've never taken, but I was on antihistamines because I've been having like, I don't know, my body's attacking itself. So anyway, that's been fun. Um, So I was like half asleep, you know, drugged up, kind of drowsy and trying my best to pay attention. And what I did notice in the beginning is, in the beginning... They were asking, I think, important questions about foreign policy, which, again, from CNN was a shock. Um, and we can talk about some of the problems with the answers in a minute. But then it got progressively more ridiculous uh, with time, including some of the foreign policy questions. So I don't know. What did you think about that That like opening round of, of questions, Richard?
1: Yeah, uh, I thought... It was interesting to see CNN kind of where they decided to focus, uh, including everything. And you mentioned the drama as well, but particularly in the foreign policy, they took good 30, 45 minutes of the yeah. opening to to talk about it. And yeah, so the framing was generally problematic. And like uh, one of the aspects that a lot of people pointed out is that uh, Although in the following debate about healthcare, uh, the cost was constantly brought up. The cost of the never-ending wars was not really a focus of any of that 45-minute discussion, which seems remarkable with such time attributed towards it. That's one of the first things that kind of stuck out to me.
0: Right.
1: Uh, and uh, I guess like a lot, it, kind of a theme of the entire debate that definitely Uh, dominated foreign policy, but went also into various other topics, was essentially, as president, how would you control other countries around the world and make (laughs) them do what you want? And it was just a really strange framing. It felt, you know, it was very, I don't know, neo-imperialist in general, hawkish, and uh, disconcerting in those ways. So there was that that really stuck out to me. And uh, towards the middle of the debate, it did seem to get very, I don't know, in the weeds, I guess. And uh, I one of the things, I guess, one more thing that stuck out to me was just for 45 minutes focused on uh, foreign policy. From my perspective, being skeptical that Bernie Sanders wouldn't step in it several times during that discussion, uh, he did it less than I expected, I guess.
0: Yeah. I mean, he had one moment where, well, so, okay, again, it's one of those situations where, he's the best of the worst, you know what I'm saying? So like the bar is pretty low in terms of our expectations, just because like, I know I'm personally coming from this from like way left of anyone on that stage. And I'm sure you are too, um, but it was, I agree with you with, the, with the, in, in terms of the framing, a lot of it was about like, what can America's <laughs> hegemony and dominance in the world? Like, how are you gonna address that as president? well i guess like how will you maintain that system Mm -hmm. um and i think that reflects a lot of the ways that you know americans are taught u.s americans are taught to think about the rest of the world and one of the things that came out like over the past couple of weeks when everything was going down with iran was that scary 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 map of like where average americans thought iran was and first of all i just want to say for international listeners like we don't get any geography. Instruction in the United States, and I think that's intentional. We don't learn about geography, and the only times we kind of learn about geography is through history classes, like in elementary and high school. And even then, the history classes are almost entirely focused around U.S. conflict with the rest of the world. Like we spend a lot and and conflict in general. So we spend a lot of time in the Civil War. We spend a lot of time on World War II. We. And then we kind of like stop at Vietnam. Most American history classes like don't even go past the 60s or 70s. There's not really any contemporary history instruction unless you opt to take those kinds of classes later on in life. Um, So we don't get any geography instruction. So it wasn't so scary to me that they didn't know where it was. But I think what was scary was the ones who thought it was in the United States, which was like, what in the actual hell? How do you think that Iran is in the United States? And then furthermore... I think it sort of reflects on, it reflects this idea of, you know, maybe why Americans were expressing a kind of a sense of violation over what they perceived Soleimani to have done. So like, you know, everyone keeps saying like, Oh, he was such a huge, not everyone, but the government kept saying, Oh, he, he posed a major threat to the United States. He posed a major threat to us soldiers, blah, blah, blah. But like, if you think that Iran is in the United States, then I can understand why you would believe that. But the issue is that Iran is a, another country. It's a sovereign country and Iraq is as well. In Iraq in particular, we have invaded and stayed there. And we, you know, started off our relationship with Iran through very contentious means in the 50s and kept kept going that direction, you know. Um, and so like this idea that they have, a, that America has a right to be there and stay there indefinitely and to never be seen as an occupying army by people in the region, which is what they are. It's kind of, I think that like this idea that people think it's in the United States shows why they would think that these people on the Iranian side, like in their military pose a threat to us. You know what I mean? Like we are, we are the threat. Mm -hmm. We are the invaders. We are the occupying army. And it's crazy to me that people are still saying things like, he was threatening U.S. soldiers, but U.S. soldiers are the enemy. Like, just think objectively about this, you know? Like, I want to shake people sometimes because I'm like, they, the U.S. invaded under false pretenses and, and has, like, obviously before then engaged in coups and violence and all sorts of stuff against the Iranian people and Iraqi people. And, like, I, I mean, it's just shocking to me that there's any semblance of – but there's any fraction of a belief – that what's happening to U.S. soldiers is not, um, I don't know, it's like, it's not justified because it is justified. I mean, imagine if someone invaded your home and attacked you. And, you know, I, I gave the analogy of like, someone throws a rock into your house through your window and it kills your dog and your child and you're left there. And the person says, now I want you to pay for this thing that I did. And then on top of that, like anyone else in your house, they continue to injure. And then like once you've gotten kind of close to repairing the window, they break other windows that kill other people that continue to do harm. And then they like light your house on fire and then tell you you have to pay for it. And, oh, it's your fault that this happened. Like that's that's what is happening. But in terms of like our global policy and, um, you know, I just I, I I I don't know what to do to get people to understand that. The U.S. is the bad guy here, and oftentimes it's the bad guy. And I think that the the questioning last night did not properly reflect that reality. And one thing I'm going to say that I will shut up, I, I think that the one area where that was very, very clear was when Bernie Sanders was giving a decent answer in response to like why or, you know the U.S. needs to stop messing with everybody and whatever. But then he said at the end of one of his responses that America will do everything within its power or something like that to make sure that Iran doesn't get a nuclear weapon. And I just thought to myself, okay, first of all, the Iran deal, when it was written up, you know, it was on the back of like a ton of sanctions and threats that were already made by the US to Iran. So it wasn't being, it wasn't an agreement that was being made on fair terms, first of all. Second of all, so that's like my problem with the Iran deal as a whole. But then even if we look at Iran, the Iran deal positively, the US is the one who kept threatening them and the US is the one who eventually pulled out. And so now like European countries are coming together to like basically sanction Iran and do all this stuff about, you know, Iran pulling out of the deal um, prematurely and whatnot. And I'm like, the U.S. is the one who pulled out of the deal first. Oh, you know, like Trump broke down the deal and including, you know, some Democrats had been pushing against the deal for many, many years, um, including Clinton, who now likes to take credit for what she did. uh, But she didn't she didn't have that much of a hand in the Iran deal with the exception of, like I said, threatening Iran regularly to come, quote unquote, come to the table. Um, but those that, that kind of language to me is really it's threatening in a lot of ways because I'm like, after everything that's happened, Iran has every right if they want <laughs> to like, build as many nuclear weapons as they'd like because they are being threatened on a regular basis by this country. And I don't, Agree with nuclear proliferation. I don't want people to have, I don't want anyone to have weapons. But I think it's ridiculous that we can say it's okay for Israel to have a weapon or you know, massive nuclear weapons, or the US to have these weapons, or parts of Europe to have these weapons, but then these brown and black countries can't have any weapons because they wouldn't you know, it's like the, the sort of imperial mindset there. These are savages who wouldn't know how to restrain themselves from using violence on the rest of the world. When in actuality the US and Europe has been actively engaging in violence towards the rest of the world
1: oh absolutely i i agree with uh, all the points you raised there particularly the ones that uh stood out to me as well uh, both when you made them and during the debate was uh, also uh previously to debate the where's Iran issue (laughs) and how that how that impacts people's perceived threat like I mean besides the ones that put it in the United States which I'm hoping a large majority of them just had no clue and just just went with that rather than but like there's also another smaller map that was limited more towards Europe and the Middle Eastern region and they that one was just as bad with like only a couple more percent of people actually landing somewhere in iran or iran and so with iran and iraq uh, in general that was also a a similar situation and so uh, the disconnect between the humanity of the populations of these places that are being terrorized by u.s foreign policy and like the perceptions of that we're actually bringing democracy and freedom to them is critical and the fact that they're such a disconnect from where they are just geographically uh, it leads me to believe that the, the perceptions of how what what kind of impacts we're having in in these nations or uh, in these regions is perceived among the same people and the justifications as well so i, I do think that's a critical point and so uh, obviously advocate of critical pedagogy and why that's also important to engage with to have a better understanding of the world around us so that when we engage in conflicts around the world, we're not engaging in them haphazardly and ignorantly, uh, even whether they're justified or not, or any of those types of things like, then we can actually discuss those in terms and with questions and in debates that are structured around a framing that is representative of things like one of the other points that you mentioned, which is that the U S is the irrational rogue, state provoking mm-hmm. other nations leaders and populations around the world and the one of the issues that i think people are having is if i say donald trump is an irrational rogue actor provoking nations leaders and populations around the world they're like yeah yeah i agree with it i can get a mm-hmm. bunch of liberals to sign on to that but if i tell them that the u.s has been doing that for decades you know even during the obama administration then it becomes oh well you're just as bad as trump and it's like yeah. well wait how, how did we get, how did that happen And and to me, that is kind of at the crux of a lot of the issue, and uh, I think that's an important aspect that gets glossed over by the types of framing uh, that CNN was using. That wasn't even just particularly anti-Bernie Sanders or anything, which is another framing issue that came comes later. But like issues about, as you mentioned, and we've discussed thus far, about the general framing of the U.S. as an actor on the world stage and what that means. Uh, when other people react like for instance when sanders said specifically uh that iran can't have a nuclear weapon i agree with you fully that i don't want anybody to have nuclear weapons but the idea that the united states stands as a as an arbiter of who gets to have them or not is ridiculous on several different levels and uh it doesn't bode well with me to have sanders the you know the least worst or whatever we want to frame that uh taking that kind of imperialist position and so like that that concerns me generally and then also if there's not critical engagement i've seen depending on the context and the circumstance i've seen various levels of critical engagement with sanders uh, more imperialist positions sometimes i'm more optimistic because i see a lot of confrontation among uh, his supporters about you know hey this isn't okay but then other times i see it completely ignored and that concerns me and it, it seems like something that could uh portend an issue down the road as well
0: right like i think now he's remarkably like his he's better than he was in the past um on several issues like we've you and i both have talked about the israel palestine stuff in the past and things like that um and you know he well he likes to harp on the iraq war which i think is incredibly important obviously he did support some you know cases of military funding in the past he did support the war in afghanistan he did support the bombing of Yugoslavia. He did, you know, like fill in the blank. Mm-hmm. There have been points where he has supported um, U.S. violence abroad um, over, you know, perhaps diplomacy or other methods of, uh, because I think, you know, for example, if we look at Yugoslavia, um, there were, there was a series of, of violence and, and people argue, you know, genocide. And I think that you can say, well, you know is this like a world war ii situation where we had to invade or bomb or whatever to rescue people and i think that there's always a way before you get to that point right like there's always some alternative method it's just a matter of the us being willing to pursue that um, and often you know like i think the humanitarian side gets raised uh, to sort of clean up the us's record but the us is never interested in humanitarianism like let's just be 100 percent real that's not the goal of this country. So while that might be a side effect, like it might, the the military violence might end up saving b- some lives because it puts an end to whatever acts of violence are going on within that country. The long term effect, the long term effects are not necessarily those that bend toward the humanitarian record that the U.S. would like to pretend it it has. You know, um, and we still see, for example. Um, In this country, you know, anti-Semitism and violence towards Jewish people, violence towards Muslims, et cetera. And so like this idea that the U.S. is some sort of savior of the Jewish people or savior of Muslims in Bosnia or whatever is garbage (laughs) because that's not the point that this country, that's not the reason why this country did those things. It might have been a side effect, but it's not the reason. I
1: was just going to say in the truth that we've discovered throughout uh, research is that uh, we the US was actually inspiration for some of the most atrocious acts that were committed oh, yeah. in North. And so like the the reality of the situation versus the history I was taught in my, you know, primary education is is shocking.
0: Yeah, absolutely. There was a book that came out like I want to say last year or in 2017. I'm sorry, either last year or 2018, um, by a historian who lays down that track. He's like, these are the mo- this is the model um from Jim Crow and whatnot that the Nazis followed and in some areas they the Nazis thought that the US was too harsh in its methods of racial segregation like can you imagine like and we often i mean this is the thing that also bothers me right i want to get to the point where the Nazis are not the end all be all of human violence and evil in the world because we have so many cases of violence and evil in the world in some cases, that led to even more deaths, if we're going to quantify it, right? If we're basing our degree of evil on the basis of how many people were killed. Um, and that does not, by the way, involve denying the, 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 the results of the Holocaust or denying that atrocity or underplaying it by any means. But my point is that we have to get beyond just the framing of one solitary evil, Because I think what that does is that excuses all the others, right? Mm -hmm. So it it helps us actually downplay what the U.S., just as one of many examples, has done in its history and its present. I mean, I would argue that what the U.S. has done in Iraq is a form of genocide because we invaded that country, we targeted those people, and we murdered hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people and continue to murder people there. For reasons that are based on white supremacy and capitalist greed, much like the Holocaust was. And so we have to be very clear about the ways that this kind of centralized evil or the framing of a centralized evil actually takes away from our analysis of ongoing evils, concurrent evils, and evils that predated what the Nazis did. I mean, one of the things that people bring up oftentimes is slavery um, worldwide, you know, transatlantic slave trade. And then beyond that, the Arab slave trade that also involved the sort of, um, you know, East East African slave trading and things like that. Then we look at colonialism and what atrocities were carried out under, colon- under European colonialism. I mean, people getting their legs and arms cut off if they didn't meet a quota for whatever they had to mine. Like these sorts of acts of violence get um, kind of, brushed over when we can only see one group of actors as evil. And I think we have to get beyond just that, like, kind of, I think it's a, it's a framing that makes sense. I understand it. But I want to get to the point where we can see that the American military also operates like the Nazis did. And it also operates like fill in the blank, any other past historical group that enacted violence upon, you know, a mass, a, a mass, the masses, right? Um, because, You know, like 50 years from now, are our children or grandchildren or whatever going to be recognizing in real time, not in real time, but like using real facts? Are they going to be recognizing what the U.S. has done in the 20th century as genocidal? Um, Because if you change, if you turn the tables, right, and you say, Mm. how do the Iraqis see Americans? How do Iranians see Americans? How do you know vietnamese see americans right that question if you just turn the framing <laughs> right and people you talk to people who have lost family members friends whole communities to us violence that was again like i said based on white supremacy and capitalist notions of the world order that the us seeks to maintain how do we then recognize that history and i don't understand why it's so hard to do like Maybe it's just that we lack empathy and people are so brainwashed that they can't do it. But why is it that some people are deserving of humanity for us and some people are not? And that includes the way that we talk about history. Um, And I feel like that's got, that has to change if we want to move forward and actually push the U.S. on having better policies with the rest of the world.
1: No, absolutely. And some of the things that come to my mind, what you were saying evoked is uh, the, tuskegee experiments mm-hmm. they uh preceded and post dated world war ii you know like so the us was doing experiments on people like that and like what the nazis basically were doing with jewish people uh before nazi germany and then after as well and so and all the things that you listed and many more that we don't have time to list and like there's so much out there and one of the some of the other ones that come to my mind that are more like i guess uh, politically in people's minds are we kind of accept it's generally accepted i think uh, among reasonable people i would say that two of the largest threats to humanity uh, as in general beyond just our nation national borders are uh, climate change and nuclear proliferation Mm. those two are like reasonably understood to be global threats and to the point uh, earlier about the US as an actor and so on and so forth, uh, it, what we had, and then turning the tables or looking at it differently, is imagine we had two, international, two critical international deals on that front. We had the Paris Climate Accord, which although in, insufficient, was at least a step in the right direction generally, although still, you know, capitalists and all those types of things. So like had those weaknesses, but it, it had a recognition that there was a problem that needed dramatic uh, solutions. And then the Iran deal, nuclear deal, which was signed on by countries, including China. Like, so let's just imagine for a moment, if knowing the two largest threats to humanity are nuclear proliferation and uh, climate change, if China had decided to just abandon its Paris Climate Accord uh, obligations or commitments and abandon the Iran nuclear deal. Right. Like that would be enough for the U.S. to go to war. Like, we would be ready to go to war. But we we expect these other nations to just treat it as an aberration of U.S. foreign policy and, we're, you know, that the next president can just apologize and they should all just come back to the table and listen to this one, even though the next one may completely abandon the deal again, leaving them just more vulnerable while the U.S. gets further entrenched in a, a hegemonic dominance that jeopardizes not just their you know national sovereignty but the the lives of their populace indefinite or it it puts the lives of their entire nation in jeopardy essentially and so uh one of the things that some of the more typically considered rational-minded foreign policy people have been saying is that iran has the ability to do a lot in order to negotiate with the world as far as coming to negotiations of avoiding conflict in general. But one thing that they can't do is uh, undermine their own national interest and their own national sovereignty to serve the United States interests. And that's essentially the demand of our foreign policy in this situation is that they, they submit their national interest and their uh, sovereignty to our interest and not in some sort of you know, global, hey, we all need to do these things, make these commitments in order to survive. In a, we're going to dominate you and damn the rest of the world, right. uh, essentially, an ecological disaster. And we're just going to make sure that we're well entrenched and that our our oligarchy is well insulated from the damages.
0: And it's that, sad to you know, go, go ahead. On. No, 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 that, no that,
1: okay. it, it's just that that seems to be the state. And like you said, just framing the issue and framing the circumstances in that way seems to be very difficult or to get it framed in in any sort of national stage and
0: i think too i mean not to make this whole discussion about iran but it's just like on the front of my mind since everything had happened you know between the last time we spoke and now um but it's sad too that like so many people end up dying as a result of our meddling, intervention, violence, et cetera, that are just, I mean, beyond just the people who are on the battlefield or like it, who live in the regions that we attack, but also when I think about this plane crash, like this situation is just, is so tragic because had the U.S. not murdered Soleimani and gone after Iraq and Iran and all of this, turmoil and drama that they could have avoided there would never have been a missile strike by Iran and thus you know the plane would never have been hit like I think about these sorts of things all the time and obviously I don't want to try to go back and have this alternative history because you know that's not a productive exercise but I also feel like it's just one other very clear example of how this violence affects people who aren't even involved you know what I mean like they're they're just I mean, like, I don't know. It's just incredibly, incredibly tragic. and the u s. has to take zero responsibility about this, right? Like now it's on Iran. And I know that there have been protests in Iran related to the plane crash and things like that. Um, and I don't I'm not sure how Canada has reacted. I haven't been following that very closely. so I don't know if they decided to up sanctions or do anything um, in retaliation for the the accident. But it just, you know, like, I don't know. It makes me so angry just to know that this is what's being done at all. But it makes me more angry that it's being done in our names, with our tax dollars, with, you know, in many cases, you know, international support for the sake of not being within the US's wrath. I mean, there are people living, there are people living under threat because if they give um, any sort of aid to Iran, you know, whether that be material aid, military aid, just basic goods, like trade and whatnot, they become threat they become threatened by the United States. Like it's like a ma- it's like mafia politics. you know what I mean? And people end up dying who have nothing to do with any of this. and I just I hate it. like i I don't know what else to say other than it's disgusting and awful. and even to hear progressives on that stage last night or just in general, continue to frame international policy as something in which the U S should remain dominant is terrifying to me. Cause it's like, and it's not, these, these, these things are not mistakes, if you will, like what the U S does is not by mistake. It's by design. And I don't see them as a good actor. And I also recognize that no matter which person gets the nomination. That could be the most left person on that stage or the most right person on that stage. Many things are going to stay the same because at the end of the day, no one on that stage is going to actively dismantle the CIA, the FBI, the NSA, or the U S military. Like not that stuff is all going to still be there, you know? Um, and we saw, for example, Elizabeth Warren in her discussion with, uh, Megan McCain on the view, who's a complete idiot. Um, but also with her discussions of uh her framing last night of uh US and the world, she she likes to bring up military service in her family. You know, like her brothers were in the military, and that means you know I trust and believe in the military and I honor the troops and blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like, you know, would this is where the framing comes in about the the solitary evil, right? Because it's like, no one looks at the Holocaust and says, you know, some of the Nazis were good people, <laughs> right? Like right? not all of the Nazis were bad. Some of them were all right. You know, they didn't want to participate in this. And so, it, you know, they, they kind of, some of them weren't interested in, they, they weren't doing it for white supremacist reasons. They were just doing it because it was their job. I don't know anyone who says that. Maybe there are people out there, but I'm not friends with any of them because I'm like, mm. okay. Um, but why is it all right for us to continue to prop up valorize and excuse the violence that these troops engage in. Like they know when they sign up that their job abroad is to murder people, period. And you're going to murder innocent people. You're going to murder people in other countries that have done absolutely nothing to us. And you're going to murder people for the sake of capital gain that generally does not trickle down to you. Um, And, you know, I've seen a lot of debates going back and forth about how, but if you're poor and this and that, and the U.S. military targets poor people. Yes, they do target poor people, and that is unfair, and it's messed up. And poor people are very vulnerable to this kind of brainwashing because of their economic situation, which is why I think it's important for us to have a better safety net in this country so that people don't ever feel like they should take on a job that involves killing people very much like themselves in order to survive. But there's more and more data coming out that shows that actually the majority of the people that are volunteering to go to the military and end up actually going are like white and middle class. And so don't freaking tell me that you don't have a choice. What we should be working instead of saying that and giving that excuse is we should be working towards making sure that people don't feel like they're in a position where they have to make that choice at all. You know, there should always be something that we can do to talk people out of going into the military to encourage people to find other means and to actually offer those means. Like if we can help someone get a scholarship, if we can help someone find housing, if we can help someone with whatever their financial disparity is instead of saying, well, you know, I guess they didn't have any other choice. They had to join the military um, because this is, this, I mean, it's it to me to continue to, to, celebrate that kind of violence amid everything we know, right? Like Elizabeth Warren is not stupid. She knows what the U.S. has done. And if we're looking at her age group, her brothers most likely volunteered uh, or most likely were involved in the Vietnam War or I don't know how old they are, but maybe the Iraq War or maybe some of the earlier Iraq Wars. Um, But (laughs) we're not talking about, you know, World War II or something. Like this this is stuff that happened where we knew damn well that what the us was doing was wrong it was violent it was imperialism point blank period and like i'm sorry but like i don't care if your brothers were in the military that doesn't say anything about what you think about foreign policy it just says to me that you're using that as a way to prop yourself up as some sort of champion for i don't know who but yeah like how how does your how does your brothers being involved in the military in some way give you foreign policy bona fides Like my mom's a social worker. That doesn't mean I know the first thing about social work. Right. So like, (laughs) I don't know, it just that kind of framing makes me crazy and I hate it and I don't feel like it's productive. And in many ways, I think it undermines a much larger message, which is we shouldn't be in a position where we're sending soldiers anywhere because all of these um, acts by the U.S. are ventures in imperialism, period
1: right and yeah just that that framing in general concerns me and i think one of the aspects that kind of gets highlighted in that is the importance of coalition building but then the kind of the risks and the concerns of the difference between believing in you know redemption and just being gullible and letting people infiltrate or you know capitalize on your gullibility yeah and so uh, I, I don't have an answer personally for that. And, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm prodding and poking through theory to see what I find in general. And, you know, I'm finding some pieces, but it does feel generally so far as to what I found unsatisfactory as far as being able to kind of distinguish and delineate. What make, like, who am I look who and what am I looking at for something or someone that is capable of, you know, redemption and being integrated into a, uh, a future kind of prog- or progress that we're trying to achieve and then who is and should be readily identified as opposition and so long as they maintain certain particular perspectives and so on and so forth and and kind of drawing those lines or understanding that gray area or any of that kind of thing is i think one of the things that a lot of people are struggling with that have uh, good intentions but probably feel somewhat unguided on the issue and so i think discussing it is important and so the perspective you bring i think is very important and so i i find myself agreeing with pretty much everything that you said there and so i think one of the things going forward that's going to be because i mean one of the things i think about is harkening back to when we were reading about castro and you know the members of the military that were integrated into the revolutionary movement so it's uh, like obviously the cuban military uh, has a is different position in a lot of ways than somebody in the community military has a different position than somebody in U.S. imperialist army has, in a lot of ways, and so I think that has to be also accounted for. But I think that there is some sort of, uh, some sort of area there that incorporates people that don't see things the way I see things, mm-hmm. but uh are advocating something that is oppositional to what I, is I think the within the realm of reasonable uh, solutions to the problems that we face they're outside of it It is like can they be brought into the realm of uh, reasonable solutions and then we in conversation we come to one that is viable and sustainable and so on and so forth or are they and will they forever be outside and identified as opposition and should be in that any sort of Attempts to integrate them into uh, a discussion or discourse, critical engagement about how we're going to solve these problems simply undermines it. And so I think that foreign policy is one of those places where uh, I think that is really highlighted, particularly. With as you mentioned, you know the membership of the military and the roles that socioeconomics plays, and then also the philosophies. Like if we think back to Vietnam, the sacrifices that people made in order to avoid going to that conflict were, I'd say, on par or worse than what you would see remaining in poverty in the United States without having to avoid a draft, but simply not volunteering to go into those engagements. And so, mm-hmm. I, I think that there's a fair argument to be made that uh, we should focus on trying to provide those solutions and outlets so that people don't feel that way regardless of its material reality of where whether it is a fact whether they really do have that as an only option to maintain some sort of uh, economic security for them or their family
0: right there's also I mean I I applaud the veterans who have devoted their lives basically we see this also with like the IDF in Israel there's a group of former soldiers who basically have like become anti-war activists and who do whatever they can to talk people out of like in, in, in Israel, they have to join the military, men and women. Um, they have conscription there. So, or like a draft, like everybody is part of it, but um, you know, there are some people trying to work uh, who've, who've left the system and who've said, you know, we're against war. We're against what Israel's doing to Palestinians, etc cetera. Um, that I think is positive. And unfortunately they've been attacked repeatedly by, um, you know, the Likud government. But one of the things that you do see in the U S is a similar movement of, you know, former military personnel, veterans and the like, who've said, you don't need to do this. You don't have to go to war, you know, who try to talk to, um, recruits and people who have recently considered, um, going into the military and to just kind of offer them other options and ways of, um, sustaining themselves economically and just also to offer support right because i think again there's a there's a level a degree of brainwashing that many americans like all americans are subject to let's just be honest we're all subject to it and i think if we don't have these moments that interrupt that brainwashing then we continue to go along with the program um, and you know it's it takes someone who's been in it sometimes to be able to show people who haven't that this is not some sort of Movie, you know, it's not a positive experience. It's a violent experience. It it involves enacting violence towards women, children, pregnant people, grandparents, anybody, schools. You know what I'm saying? It that mm-hmm. that real, the touch of reality, I think that comes from veterans can be really, really helpful. And I do see them as, you know, like potential comrades. I guess I can say, um, in this process, because they've been through it and they know, like, they admit. I made a huge mistake. I shouldn't have gone into the military, but now that I did and I know what happens, I'm going to tell this truth and I'm going to be honest about what this country is doing. And I appreciate that kind of work. I also just wanted to add that, um, you know, one of the things you mentioned about kind of knowing who can be on your side or not, I mean, it reminds me of what we we read when we talked about Mao um, because he has in that chapter about the military, um, but in some other chapters as well, like how to define your comrades how to be able to kind of sift through who the real people are on your side and who are not. Um, And this makes me think about Pete Buttigieg, because Mm. Pete Buttigieg, of course, was in the military and loves to bring up his military service. And many people have argued that, you know, this was just like a stepping stone for him to get into office. Um, And I would agree with that. It's like a photo op. Now, that's not to downplay whatever he may have experienced uh, while there, but again, he went by choice. No one forced him. I mean, this man is a freaking Harvard graduate. He could have done myriad other jobs and things like that instead of going to the military, but decided to go to the military um, and now uses it as like a form of clout over the other candidates by saying, well, I was in the military and I know this and know that and blah, blah, blah. But one thing he did mention last night that I thought was fascinating uh, was the bit about how some elected officials don't even seem to understand AFRICOM, which was uh, – but the ironic part is that he wasn't like, we should stop AFRICOM operations. He was just like, some people don't even know that we have soldiers in Niger. Okay, that is true um, and scary. But I think that uh, – because there was a man who died recently. was a U.S. soldier who was, who was killed um, – who was involved in some sort of military operation through AFRICOM in Niger, all of them covert, of course. Um, But, you know, I don't know. He is in a position where he could be like, this is the atrocity of war. This is why we shouldn't do this. This is why we shouldn't operate unilaterally in our foreign policy, blah, blah, blah. But he kind of just, I mean, Pete's all over the place. He doesn't ever really give a solid answer, which is one of the things that has always frustrated me about like trying to listen to him during the debates He's always triangulating, like, literally everything that comes out of his mouth is like from both sides of it. And so it's very hard to pin down how he feels about certain things. But I can guarantee you that, like, his work as a consultant and kind of like sheltered soldier in Afghanistan is not the basis on which we can look at him and say, oh, yeah, Pete's going to be anti war because he lived through this. I think, if anything, it tells us that. He's not going to care and from the little bit that i do know about his foreign policy and like just in general policies he's going to side with the sort of corporate um interests over that of the people here or there you know in other countries
1: no absolutely and i think that that's an excellent point you make regarding uh pete there and i think one of the aspects that uh, kind of I guess is really concerning in general is that just how few people are aware that, you know, the U S is imposing its imperialism also throughout Africa, you know, and yeah. the kind of, uh, terror that's being, uh, inflicted throughout Africa. And it's to another point of just, you know, uh, kind of for me processing all of this, you know, and like my role and like where I stand in all of it, it's a, you know, one of the things that Africa brings to my mind is the DRC and that like we're all using or listening with electronics that with all likelihood have some sort of cobalt or something mined by child children for like 75 cents a day and risking, you know, their lives and very makeshift tunnels and all those kinds of things. And just like the sheer horrific atrocity that is global capitalism and the U.S. hegemony and just like how how easy it is to to talk about the the horror of uh people that work for insurance companies losing their job or uh things like that but the the horrific nature of the what the US inflicts globally is just not even the news topic most of the time right. you know it, it's just it's so i don't know it's uh, it's unnerving if if nothing else you know just that we can lose so much humanity and see such horrific stuff happening all around the world and just go day to day without really even noticing you know like australia and the amazon are both on fire and it's like they were playing tennis and it was like people wouldn't even notice until one of the tennis players like collapsed in a coughing fit on on the court and it's just mm-hmm. like this just feels bizarre to me that we're doing this you know that we're like just going day to day while all of this is happening.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. And I think especially thus on this point about Africa, like it's not even an afterthought, right? Um, it's not a thought at all. <laughs> like, it's not the the continent as a whole is not considered despite the fact that it's obviously resource rich. Um, I think some of the resource extraction there falls under the radar when it comes to our discussion of Climate change and environment, and I mentioned this the other day on Twitter. I said, you know, we don't talk enough about mining and deforestation that's happening, and it mainly affects Latin America and Africa. Um, but things that are that are done in that process involve incredible violations of human, like humanity um, and recognition of of humanity and I think also of course the collateral damage there is that of the environment. we and i I, I often hear people talk about carbon emissions about air pollution um, which we're thinking about kind of quote unquote first world forms of pollution um, you know people with cars, factories and blah 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 um, and that the abundance of those um, you know pollution making devices. But there's not, and then I think also like there's, there has been more of a discussion about um, recycling and and trash and all of that, you know, like the amount of goods that the average American has and how there's an overabundance of of material things that they can't process. Right. So we have trash that we're sending to other countries. And like, I I saw an article the other day where we're like, we're sending trash to China. And China was like, yeah, we're not going to take your trash anymore. And the U.S. kind of freaked out. It's like, guys, like, (laughs) do you hear how absurd that sounds? It sounds as absurd to me as like what we were talking about before, where people are getting mad that U.S. troops or the invaders are being attacked in other countries where we have no right to be. Um, So a similar situation. and, And but I think in that process, what ends up happening is that we don't talk about the effects of things like mining and deforestation that in the case of mining in particular, like you said, goes towards all the devices that are supposed to sustain this environmental revolution, right? Our green mm. revolution and high tech goods are often like solar panels and they all this stuff, everything that we have that is potentially useful in, you know, like i don't know rat, rat, ratifying or not ratifying uh, rectifying excuse me rectifying some of the damage that we've done or attempting to on the environmental level it still involves environmental damage and we just don't talk about that side of things because it's not impacting workers in the us or in europe you know it's impacting workers and children on as you said um from other places that we like to just pretend don't exist despite our always getting everything from them um I think one of the things I saw the other day as well was that uh, there are several African leaders that are trying to make connections or like strengthen ties with the U S and Europe in combating terrorism. Um, And that's also scary because I'm just like, it's again, the further militarization of the continent, um, which then of course is being done by oftentimes leaders who themselves are incredibly corrupt and who were elected under kind of strange premises and and fill in the blank. There are lots of issues. These are not, we're not looking at revolutionary governments from the seventies and the sixties, you know, like post-colonial movements. We're looking at people who have survived after all the other post-colonial leaders were assassinated or tricked or imprisoned or whatever. Um, And we're looking at a, a set of leaders, I think, who are less interested in the, The needs of the people and more interested in lining their pockets, more interested in making Africa part of a larger neoliberal hyper-capitalist framework um, for the elites in those countries to benefit from. Um, And I think it's being done, unfortunately, on the backs of the most poor and the most vulnerable. And I I mean, I've seen it with my own eyes, you know, and I think it's it's very scary that um, it's You know, I don't see an end to it coming in in the future. I think it's going to get much, much worse. And I think where we're going to see, you know, we we often talk about the kind of militarization that's going to happen amid climate change where people are going to have private militaries and private police and stuff who literally will like guard water, you know, like and guard uh, the goods and basic needs that wealthy people need to have. I mean, this is what we're seeing happen in Africa right now. And it's not something that's going to be gradual. It's something that's literally happening and ramping up as we speak. Um, I know for a fact in many, many, many countries um, where there's U.S. military presence, it's intense, it's very real, it's on the ground. They get involved with, um, you know, voting. They get involved in, they like police, you know, the voting process. Um, They train embassies. They do a lot of stuff that we don't talk about or know about um, here in the United States, but that I think, is foreboding in really, really scary ways, but enough. I, I've said enough, like that's, I feel like I keep <laughs> rambling, so I apologize, but it's just like all of the topics last night from the foreign policy section as, I mean, I think a lot of people focused on on like the framing of the questions, but I think the answers also were revealing in that they don't, they no one offered an end to anything, you know, and a real end, no one offered a real solution to what's happening other than, well, I'm not going to be Trump, right? We know you're not going to be Trump, but like, what are you going to do going forward to make things better in U.S. foreign policy? And we didn't see that. Um, And that I think is really concerning, but we can switch to another topic because we've like, I think we spent longer than than CNN did on it.
1: Yeah, I was just going to say, so we don't like the points that you're raising and I think uh, especially about post-colonial Africa and the kind of governments that they that we see there now is that you don't need, you know, an educated, uh, like critically pedagogically educated populace in order to get re- to revolutionary violence that overthrows, you know, an oppressive regime, but you do need it if you don't want to end up in a similar or worse situation afterwards. And so like, basically I see, uh echoes of the you know papa doc kind of you know i we're gonna get rid of these oppressors and now i'm your oppressor and you're gonna love it (laughs) and it's uh we see a lot of that throughout africa that's not every african nation There's several different nations that have unique circumstances which is i guess uh valuable to worth pointing out as well just as it often too often gets lumped all together in general generalized but in, in interest of expediency, and as you mentioned already, having spent uh, extended amount on foreign policy in general, I think healthcare was pretty much where they went next. Uh, that I think, as I mentioned at the top, the stark contrast in all of that time and not talking about really the cost in humanity, besides uh, U.S. soldiers, really, mm-hmm. and the cost in treasure uh, that they didn't talk about in foreign policy that became the at least the treasure part became the focus of the healthcare debate and uh, i'll just hand it off to you to talk about a little bit and come back
0: oh yeah that's the that's the that's the go-to procedure you know like just uh how much is it going to cost to do healthcare? but we're not going to talk at all about how much it costs to don't watch wars all over the world um i think last night we got some quotes finally from people um pete Buttigieg judge said that his healthcare plan was going to cost $1 trillion, if I'm not mistaken, Um, trying to, you know, down, he he tried, the the centrists always like to try to offer a smaller amount. Um, But the reality is obviously his healthcare plan isn't really a plan. It's not going to help anyone. Um, And, you know, everything for Pete is means tested, even down to the college for all stuff, which like just listening to him talk about it, my eyes glaze over because I'm like, you're so full of shit that I can't handle it. Um, but he he likes to kind of make it seem as if these larger programs have to be means tested in a way to keep out the rich, except everyone knows that wealthy people are not going to send their kids to public college most of the time. Um, and that even I'm I'm actually surprised because last night the moderators asked him the question that had been on people's minds, which was like, you know, we have libraries and public high school and roads and rich people partake in those goods and resources. So like, why are you trying to limit it? Why are you trying to limit the college experience only to a certain set of people? Um, And how are you going to measure that? How are you going to like, like, are people just every year going to have to submit their taxes to show how wealthy their parents are? Like, how is this going to work, you know, on the administrative level as well? Um, So I think that there was some care from the moderators in that sense, they weren't as great on the healthcare discussion, though. And and again, it's almost like every time we get to the healthcare discussion in these debates, it's always the same thing over and over. I have not seen one variation in, our, in the discussion of healthcare. It's always how much is it going to cost? What are we going to do about all the people who get knocked off their insurance? And then last night, the issue of trying to work with insurance providers, workers, was interesting, but like... I don't understand why people can't see that people who work for the insurance industry now will be incredibly useful working for the government and a state level. If we switch to a Medicare for all program, because they would help administer not only the like um, you know, the like making sure that everyone gets their care. So we would see an uptick in people who do social work and um, helping break down the plans, explain the plans and assign plans for people. But it also, I mean, they would be needed to just like, work phones, work offices deal with the sort of logistic nature of things. So I'm not sure why everyone's afraid that like all these insurance people are going to lose their jobs. Like, I mean- I don't know. It's kind of a weird. It's a weird preoccupation to me. I feel like the preoccupation should be on the fact that there are like millions of people who are dying because they don't have healthcare, or they're not covered, or their healthcare is too expensive. And just, I just want to put one anecdotal thing in there. So today I went to the doctor because I'm like at the doctor every day now, practically. Um, and they, t- I asked them just out of curiosity. I was like, "So how much is my C-section going to cost?" And they're like, "Well, the total is eight thousand dollars." And I was like, "Okay." <laughs> that's a lot of money. Um, and apparently my insurance covers 90% of that. So I'm still going to have to pay money out of pocket. Um, but I know people who like, I mean, I don't even understand, but there are, there's insurance plans that like won't pay for C-sections in some cases, There's insurance plans that won't pay in full, that won't pay nearly as much of the amount that I receive. And I say, this is someone I have like decent insurance, but like, it's just crazy to me that, in this country to have a C section cost that much to have a baby, I think costs five thousand, just like vaginal birth. And like for what? <laughs> you know, I have in-laws from Turkey that paid, you know, around fifty to a hundred dollars to have their babies. And it's just shocking to me. Like when I hear these numbers, it's shocking to me and I'm wondering who's getting that money? Because I know it's not going straight to my doctor. I know it's not going straight to the hospital. Like, who are we paying with this? And Why is it so expensive? And something has to give, you know, like I I cannot, I just, when I hear the numbers that don't make sense to me, they don't make any sense to me. And so I think last night's discussion and any of these discussions that we've seen on the debate stage about healthcare have been insufficient because their focus is always how much is the program going to cost as opposed to how much does healthcare cost right now to the average American citizen um, and who doesn't have the money to pay for this sort of stuff.
1: It's it, it. It's not just you, and like we've seen, there's that video that went somewhat viral uh, from the UK about uh-huh. U.S. healthcare. It doesn't make sense to any. Like most industrialized nations, look at our healthcare and are don't. It just doesn't make any sense. Like the idea that people would be put out and left to die or go bankrupt because they can't get basic treatment or end up. Uh, with uh, critical conditions because of not being able to get regular access to see physicians and so on and so forth that we would, the wealthiest nation in the world is in such a state of disrepair is confounding to any like reasonable people around the world. Like not even just uh, countries with Uh, demonstrably better healthcare systems than us, but countries that are building their healthcare systems. And when they're looking globally for models and ideas about how to improve them, they presume that the wealthiest country in the United States would be one of the places that they should look. But what they realize is that when it comes to actually providing care to the people that need it, that's not something the US excels at when it comes to providing uh, absurdly expensive and technologically advanced uh, services for a very small group of uh, people that is one of the places that the U.S. does uh, tend to lead in some ways but even there it doesn't lead in all the way in in every category and for every particular situation and so it's shocking just to reiterate it's just shocking globally that the United States healthcare system is what it is and so but we're constantly told that we should just you know kind of more or less accept it and then the other thing that happens uh, as you mentioned in all of these debates and has been going on basically since uh, we started there there was a, a start to pitch the ACA was you know ACA versus a nationalized system and so on and so forth and one of the things that we've discovered demonstrably throughout the time that the ACA has been enacted besides being inadequate providing the care that people need it's Uh, Legally, the legal framework of the way that the United States functions, it's more vulnerable to uh, the wanton uh, destruction of it by uh, both insurance uh, interests and Republicans and a variety of other interests that see value in undermining or destroying the small benefits that were uh, gained through the ACA. And so... Uh, something like a Medicare for all or a uh, nationalized system is not only stronger in the performance category, as far as being able to actually deliver the care that people need, it's also stronger constitutionally and within the legal framework of the United States. So, so long as that we're going to be beholden to it, uh, which I guess Trump is pressing daily, uh, the framework that we need to use and the, the... the policy that best matches that framework is uh, a nationalized Medicare for all type system rather than trying to work with the ACA, which is what you'll hear from all of the, uh, basically all of the other candidates.
0: Right. I keep wondering though, like, I mean, I'm not a legal scholar or healthcare medical, you know, medical field scholar now that I don't know fully how this would work, but one of my concerns is just looking at the ongoing dismantling of the NHS It makes me wonder, like, how do we make sure that a program like if we were to implement Medicare for all is solid? I think that's one of my biggest fears, because it seems like, you know, of course, so much legislation in the U.S. is subject to the next person who comes into office. Right. Um, And Trump has done so much damage in his short period of time in office. that It's like unreal. And so I wonder, you know, because I feel like the whoever becomes president next, if it's a Democrat, Um, he or she is going to have to spend the first chunk of their administration just undoing the shit that Trump did, you know? Um, And so part of me wonders, like, how do we make sure that a program like this is foolproof and has fail-safes and will not be dismantled upon entry of a Republican president next time, you know? or a series of Republican senators or representatives or whatever, because this is what we're seeing happen in England right now, you know, and also what we're seeing happen in other countries as well that had a universal nationalized, so, you know, socialized healthcare system now because of neoliberal actors, you know, are bringing in insurance companies and trying to kind of take apart their systems. Um, and, Yeah. It's just a fear in the back of my mind, you know, I, I, because we also, we often like to cite social security with, oh, social security is a good example of like, you know, um, some legislation that's had staying power and that people have not been successfully able to dismantle. But when you think about how little social security people in our generation are going to get, and then our kids are not going to have any, um, and then also just like how there are even Democrats who are trying to get rid of social security, Um, And what they call, quote unquote, entitlement programs. I mean, I just, it's kind of scary to me. And I wish that that would be part of the discussion too. Like not only just this, how are you going to pay for it? How are you going to implement it? But also how do you keep it from disappearing? Um, And it's one of those things that like comes up often when we talk about Andrew Yang. Because we say, well, he's doing the whole UBI thing. And unfortunately, under his plan of UBI, it would get rid of like welfare, and, and that's kind of like the underlying message, you know, that's this like libertarian streak of his UBI plan in that people who take the UBI are no longer el- eligible for multiple social programs. And so some people see this as a kind of Trojan horse uh, for people to get rid of social programs altogether. And so I keep wondering, like, how do we, how can we also talk about making sure that a healthcare plan like this is permanent? Um, I don't know. It's just sort of a rhetorical thing floating around for me, but I keep wondering that and I'm frustrated that people don't really th- seem to think about mm. that or have like a backup plan. I don't know. Maybe I'm uh, being yeah. too cynical here, but yeah.
1: Oh, I was just gonna say that uh I think part of how that is I guess kind of highlighted is with the the concept of whether it's an opt-in or, or automatic kind of program and I think having it be automatic and from the standpoint that healthcare is a, f- a fundamental human right and essentially arguing uh, that aspect of it and incorporating it through that kind of mechanism is the way like I'm not speaking specifically about uh, particular policy details but essentially as far as the framing in general is as healthcare as a human right and that it's making it as intrinsic as uh I would say the first amendment, but you know, even that is in jeopardy sometimes. So right. <laughs> I think, I think one of the things that theory tells us is that the permanence of any of these gains is only secured by continued uh, vigilance. You know, right. it's, you can't expect any of these gains to be maintained without constant uh, reticence and attention paid towards their maintenance. Mm-hmm. And I think that makes sense just from a practical point of view. Um, one of the other aspects, uh, let's see here. I had something in here. I'll find it in my notes. Uh, da, 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 da. I mean, I guess one of the things briefly I wanted to talk. About, I definitely want to talk about climate and kind of two of the aspects of that that I think came up was error that were important to somewhat highlight is the U.S. MCA trade deal and Warren's defense of it. Essentially, just kind of disregarding concerns about the climate yeah Uh, that's to me i mean i know a lot of people got very upset about the personal drama that took place uh during and preceding and all the after the debate but if there was one particular event that would have uh taken her from uh consideration or taking her away from consideration for me although i admittedly she wasn't there in the first place uh it would have been that kind of disregard for the environmental concerns and the acquiescence to trump's agenda Th- those yeah. two factors are just like not demonst- demonstrative of the type of leader that could even uh, the analogy that i use is you know like a lot of these people want to just get inside the oligarch's house and then bar the door when they get in uh bernie seems like the only one that might not drop the bar on the door when he gets in there you know he still leaves it up to us to kick it in and to do something about what's going on inside but uh he, he might at least leave it open. And as the rest of them are going to bar it and put bars on the outside and hire new armed guards to stand in front, you know, that's, that's where we're at. And so when I saw that from Warren, it very much felt like, Oh, okay. You know, she's willing to sacrifice uh, the environmental concerns and the people that are going to be uh, sacrificed uh, by it. their humanity is disregarded with these types of policies and, and to give Trump away. and just to basically, fit in with what the democratic agenda is which is to me needs to be articulated as also unacceptable in light of Trump's agenda as also unacceptable perhaps more obscenely unacceptable but the for me the issue isn't you know the lesser of in that it's the priority is that they are both unacceptable and we cannot allow them to perpetuate not only because the like the moral imperative, but it our survival as a species is dependent on it as well, you know like and the thrive any sort of life worth living uh, in the hellscape that these people are preparing for us is dependent on us uh, taking these types of actions and taking in considerations and that's what I guess uh, made Warren's response so uh, obscenely absurd to me.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point because that's something that got overshadowed with all the personal drama stuff. Um just I mean, I I also my husband and I were both watching when they were talking about the the job stuff and that particular deal and I just kept thinking to myself they keep bringing up how this is this is necessary for workers and so we had to do something and otherwise people would lose their jobs and blah 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 blah, blah. but like I just don't I don't know. I, there are obvious problems with it. I'm not as well versed on the the degree of difference between this program and NAFTA. Um, but I do think that, you know, just kind of having a basic understanding of it, that it's something that the Democrats didn't necessarily have to have, um, like, succumbed to and voted for. Uh, But it was at that weird time. I feel like because it was it was also like amid all the impeachment stuff. And then this was happening. And so people were like, why would you try to impeach the president? But then at the same time, you're supporting a bit of legislation from him. Like, what is happening? It was like simultaneous.
1: To speak Uh, to my understanding of like congressional going on essentially what transpired was uh, in order to get the centrist Democrats to sign on to the impeachment. Nancy had to give them or Pelosi had to give them wins that they could take back home. And the trade deal was one that was going to include both uh, particular talking points and then potentially pork that they could bring home to their particular districts.
0: I mean, that's sickening, you know, and like this also reminds me of, of Warren's support for all the AUMFs and like military funding in this case, under Trump and other presidents, but, you know, like, come on, don't, I don't know. I'm so frustrated with her because I am one of those people who was like, okay, if Bernie doesn't pull through for some reason or another, and it gets to the point where Elizabeth is the front runner in the primary, then maybe I would vote for her. Um, you know, like if Bernie had to drop out or something like Mm -hmm. that, like she's the second, she's very far away from Bernie, in my opinion, in terms of her progressivism, but she was like the the next kind of best thing of the worst things. You know what I mean? Like if I had to do a a hierarchy of like best to worst. um, Particularly that
1: consideration came up around Bernie's heart attack. Yeah, exactly. And so so there was,
0: yeah, there was definitely something in the back of my mind where I was like, okay, well, would I be able to vote for her? And last night, among many nights all this you know i i had already had it in my head that so like i was not gonna vote for her under any circumstances but um i think last night's debate really s- put that nail in that coffin multiple in multiple areas <laughs> like multiple right. nails in the coffin for that because i think there were many points in time last night where we started to really see and i think this is in part because she's trying she seems to be trying to appeal to more centrist voters right now because she realizes that Bernie people are not going to have her Um, and especially not after what we'll talk about in a minute. But um, but I think that she's kind of I think more confidently trying to move to the right, or at least be herself, I guess, since she's a former Republican and has a lot of the the and I don't say that as like a you can't be a Republican and then change and be better. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying is like this part of her is kind of starting to come out, I think, more clearly right now, because she initiated her campaign as like I'm a progressive and I'm with the Bernie wing of the party and blah, blah, blah. And I think now she's kind of like already turning to the center. And this is a move that normally you don't see until the election, until the general election, you know Um, that she's kind of already going in that direction. And I think that you're bringing up the trade deal is a really important point that adds to that argument Um, because she didn't have to support it. But at the same time, this is why like, again, I've already expressed support for Bernie, at least in this primary, I'm going to vote for him. Um, But that's not to say that I don't have myriad criticisms of him. One of which was one of many is that during the the um, when the government was shut down, the legislation to bring the the government back online basically was a deal that involved um, some really creepy and awful measures measures when it came to immigration, um, including like supplementing the smart, quote unquote, smart wall and all this stuff that kind of threw um undocumented people under the bus and Bernie supported that. Whereas if I'm not mistaken, Warren did not, Gillibrand did not, um, Booker did not. There were some other other people who were still in the race at the time who didn't support it. Um, and it wasn't like Bernie's vote wasn't like a tiebreaker or something. He didn't have to vote for that bill. Um, I get the double edged sword aspect of it because then if he if he hadn't voted for the bill, then people would be like, oh, you don't support workers, but but at the same time i think you can have an argument about supporting workers that doesn't involve you know like jeopardizing the safety of undocumented people and you have to get to the point where you recognize undocumented people as potential workers in this country who can and should be allowed to make um strides with us born native born workers as comrades you know what i'm saying like i don't understand the disconnect on that front um why we can't recognize undocumented people as potential union um members and people who are also fighting for workers rights but that's a separate issue but i don't I know i it, yeah or, or, well, uh, oh, go ahead no 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 i was just saying i'm i'm just frustrated with the quote unquote progressive candidates because they're very quick to sell out certain demographics you know
1: yeah All no of them. And it, there's a there's you can go back in bernie's history and there's little little things will pop up that kind of indicate the sort of nationalist perspective Mm -hmm. towards uh, the protection protect uh, protectionist worker attitude in uh, Sanders platform and uh, Sanders for all of his pluses and minuses uh, one of the things I think is he is relatively consistent and sincere and so like I don't think he says that just to appeal politically to a white working demographic. I think he Mm -hmm. actually believes it. And it runs uh, through through a thread that concerns me about Sanders in general, about uh, kind of really, in my opinion, abandoning trying to secure support from uh, a lot of uh, more marginalized communities, particularly black Southerners uh, and older black Southerners in particular, and then also sacrificing the global South and the, the conceptions of the Green New Deal as it exists currently uh, under kind of pr- the progressive umbrella, and so I I I would echo that, and then also his support of the F thirty uh, five program in Vermont as a jobs program all fits this kind of uh, willingness to sacrifice uh, brown body brown black bodies both domestically and internationally. Uh, you could one could say it's for political expediency, but to me, I think it has a lot more to do with just the hegemonic beliefs of America and the superiority mm-hmm. of white- white su- right supremacy and so and like this isn't to call Bernie Sanders a white supremacist or, like to make that point, but just to say that like he, like all of us are is susceptible to that, and that's one of the places that we see particularly for Bernie, where it has uh secured itself relatively stable in in his perspective towards things i don't think he's completely immovable but i also don't think it's realistic to expect him ever to reach a position that reflects that kind of uh solidarity that it should be mm-hmm. and and i think you know the social democrat tendencies uh, that he would describe as democratic socialism uh, i think carry on to that and, and build into that and so like uh, that's one of the concerns that uh, raises me is that I would echo. in when it comes to the progressive uh, representation on that stage, and obviously Warren performed more poorly in that regard, but I would be remiss to not also criticize what I saw flawed in Sanders approach there as well. One of the things that also kind of both surprised me, concerned me, it just gave me a bunch of mixed emotions, in combination was Steyer's declaration that, you know, he's going to call a state of emergency, uh, and the mentioning of, uh, black and Brown communities, uh, the sincerity of that, I question. And then when Sanders, which I, th- which of anything that he said on that stage that night sounded the most, like something he would say for electoral reasons was that he would support anybody on that stage if they got the nomination, mm-hmm. uh, it's like, wait a minute! You're you're telling me you're even considering supporting a billionaire? <laughs> like, I under I understand the dynamics of all oh, it's at play here, but do we want not want to at least hedge that a little bit? <laughs> Something yeah. like because fundamentally, I know Steyer of the billionaires it's like him and Hanauer are, are the better ones, I guess. But the like as was pointed out ironically by the CNN commentators in one of their few moments of decent journalism or uh, moderation was. Uh, well, you did make most of those billions off of oil and gas. Are you silly? Mm-hmm. Some of them. And uh, for me, Steyer's answer was uh, inadequate and insufficient. And I'm not entirely convinced the giving pledge isn't mostly to screw over their kids more than it is to contribute back to society. Mm-hmm. Like they just don't want to, <laughs> like they feel like their kids are ungrateful. They don't want to leave too much wealth to their children more than they want to give back their ill-gotten gains back to the societies or at least the following generations of the society that they stole it from.
0: Steyer's a weird one because he has a tendency in all of these debates to sort of just echo what other people are saying. Like, I don't know. I have trouble sometimes like pinpointing what he actually stands for because he's always like, yeah, Bernie's right. Or like Liz is right or so-and-so's right. I mean, the only person he kind of was like, they're not right last night was Buttigieg. So like, he kind of, I wouldn't say went after Buttigieg, but he said some negative things about Buttigieg that Buttigieg was then forced to rebut. Um, but in general, I don't understand why he's there other than this being a vanity project. Um, because just like his campaign funding alone, he could have like ended world hunger or whatever, you know, like it just seems kind of like a silly project. Um, I don't fully understand what he's doing up there, but I certainly, like you said, if I were Bernie, I would not have expressed support for him or a variety of other people on that stage. Um, I don't know. It was like, But again, the thing is is that we have to remember the circumstances in which he said that, which was in this whole debacle about the sexism stuff, right? So this Mm -hmm. is the reason he said that, if I'm not mistaken, was like after he was saying that, um, you know, I would support. He said it because he was like, I would support any candidate, including women, obviously, because, I, you know, even even," he was like, even though, of course, I would rather be the one who wins, but I would support anybody on the stage, you know. Um, but I, well, I just want to go ahead and transition into that. I know it's kind of been talked to death at this point, but I'm so frustrated by what I'm seeing happen already in this race. Um, and I think, you know, I'm not one of those people who's like Liz is lying. Like, blah, blah. I, think, I think there's a lot of that. <laughs> Hundred um, snake using, emojis. <laughs> yeah, like snakes. Um, I'm not one of those people. I don't personally think like I again. I'm not. A person who was in that room, right? I'm not Liz Warren. I'm not Bernie Sanders. I think the timing is kind of suspect. I think the release of all this drama happening in the past, you know, like three days has been a little suspect. Um, I also couple that with the fact that, like, I know she has a lot of Clinton campaign advisors and fans and, you know, et cetera. The other thing is, I'm tired. I'm really tired. We saw this in 2016, we see it now of people. On the side of these kinds of candidates, weaponizing um, identity, weaponizing um, very important language around like rape and trusting people of color, trusting women, things like that that normally should be taken seriously. I think that they weaponize and use for political gain in ways that I find incredibly offensive. Um, So for me personally, I don't like the rhetoric on either side of this, right? This discussion... I don't like the way progressives have responded necessarily. And I don't like the way that the Warren campaign and her backers have responded. Um, with all that said though, I do find the situation odd because um, you know, it just, the timing was weird. And um, I think that regardless of how either party remembered it, the way CNN responded to it was weird mm-hmm. because like, that, that threw red flags up for me that something is going on, like this is orchestrated, this is planned. Sure, sure, sorry, Warren's response to the question by Abby Phillip was incredibly rehearsed. Um, so it almost, it felt very coordinated to me. Um, and just in case anyone like doesn't know what we're talking about, I don't know why they wouldn't, but <laughs> we're talking about the fact that Warren alleges that Bernie Sanders said that a woman couldn't win um, in a run for president. And uh, during their meeting in 2018, which is a private meeting between the two of them, and that CNN leaked on the supposed um, uh, reference of four people who knew of the discussion. Um, again, like all anonymous sources, that whole thing. But the whole, the whole process to me felt suspect um but i also i just felt just kind of thinking about my own instincts right looking at body language thinking about past behaviors it makes me question warren's side because she has a history of lying we know that <laughs> like she she lied about her native american heritage that is minimal at best and not necessarily certifiable as like an actual native american right so she may have native she has like a very small amount of quote unquote native american blood but, as anyone who's been following this story understands, that's not how indigeneity is determined in the United States um and by indigenous people in particular. It has to do with community involvement, closeness, and all this other stuff that I have actually learned about because of this, you know, wild story that she had for so many years. Um and I actually, for those who may not may have missed it, um, I was at a historical association uh, meeting two years ago. Uh, where I listened to several Indigenous scholars talk about this issue um, and how blood quantum is not the reliable source and how people identify themselves as Native American, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You can find that thread on my Twitter page um, because I I did a live tweet of what they were talking about during the conference talk. Um, But in general, I just find her side of the story suspect. And it's not because she's a woman, by the way. I just want to make that clear because I know some people have said, oh, people don't believe her because of sexism, whatever. I mean, I think if she didn't have a history of lying, if it weren't the timing that it was, if the Iowa caucuses, you know, weren't three weeks away from now, if she had shown some sort of frustration, contention, um, disagreement with Sanders throughout the campaign up until now, if she had opened her campaign with this story as a potential motivation for her to run, et cetera. There are so many things that could have happened that would have made me say, okay, I believe that he said that, right? I believe Warren's side of the story. But the series of the events, the lead up to this, the way it unfolded, the question framing itself, the fact that she has a history of lying, her body language during the discussion, just all of it, and then even after the debate, which I'm sure you saw, All of it left me with a bad taste in my mouth and it felt like a very cheap attempt to use a very legitimate issue to then undermine the campaign of someone who does have women's backs. Like, I'm sorry, but so much of Bernie's legislation actually benefits women tremendously. And so I just, for me personally, like I I found it strange. I don't know. I, I have... and and again, this is not, but I, I also, I just want to say one more thing. Like I also was frustrated by some progressives response to this, which was, Oh, she's pulling identity politics and blah, blah, blah. I saw a lot of that last night. I saw a lot of people, you know, complaining about her pulling the woman card and this and that. And like, y'all don't have to do that. None of that's necessary. All you have to do is show like a consistent pattern of lying, a consistent pattern of distorting the truth, a consistent pattern of, engaging in some things lately that have been, you know, like suspect as, as campaign strategies. Um, And also like the fact that she's not doing well in the polls, she is fighting right now for her survival in the campaign prior to a very important vote. And so this is normal behavior if you're under that kind of pressure. Um, But it's not necessarily behavior that i would condone and i but i don't i don't like either side's response to this i don't know where are you on this situation if anywhere <laughs>
1: yeah i mean I, I agree with you in general like it was a uh, generally an uncomfortable moment the Styer's face during the post debate handshake <laughs> i think kind of summed up the like certain feelings i guess it, it, there was definitely an, an invoked uh like just a wtf moment when the CNN moderator was like so you know Sanders you just emphatically denied it and so just to be clear you are saying that that didn't happen and he was like yes that's correct and then she completely disregarded that answer in order to to feed uh, Warren the question that she did and that was just like just mind numbing and then it it i guess set the stage for what became the post debate coverage which i think just Cemented the idea that it seemed coordinated in that, yeah. Like, there was even at one point, uh, somebody that was uh, previously a big advocate for Hillary Clinton's 2016 campaign that was essentially saying it's not a he said, she said, despite Anderson Cooper having to this happened pre and post debate, but pre debate cooper corrected it's like it's literally he said she said that's that's (laughs) like literally just like that cnn listened to four anonymous people granting them anonymity anonymity for no stated reason which is against basic journalistic practices uh that they reported that doesn't change the fact that it's a he said she said and so that Mm -hmm. that was just bizarre in general and like the level of like not just uh you know misinformation but disinformation you know like actively undermining reality with what you're saying is is just i guess i shouldn't be surprised at this point from any major corporate uh, outlet really but that it was when so many people were going to be paying attention and would presumably have seen the interaction themselves uh it seemed heavily reliant on stripping out the context of the actual what happened and the preceding and uh, post events and strictly focusing on a narrative that they were going to construct mm-hmm that was absent what actually transpired and seeing the coverage afterwards uh, because I keep that stuff on generally as background noise a lot of time. And so like, uh, (laughs) that's, uh, I see some of it. And so what I saw after the debate as well, and uh, and even in some of the coverage in this morning, it was very much a a retelling of that event that cap that was selling the story that Warren essentially capitalized on, feminist energies uh from that moment you know kind of spiting sanders you know misogynistic attitudes about women uh, leaders basically is kind of how it's being sold in a specific media outlets and uh the the tendency of those media outlets and compared to their coverage of 2016 uh there's some consistency there that also i think leads to uh, some sort of coordinated or directed attempt that was more of an electoral strategy uh, whether it originated with warren herself or people within her camp or even uh, people outside of her camp Uh, warren's handling of it uh, especially when it was presented in that stark contrast on the stage was abysmal and just disheartening and uh, just generally concerning and so i I agree with what you said there Uh, and i for the the other, the only other aspect, I guess, uh, you mentioned, kind of the response from progressives, and uh, to one degree, I get when people are express things like, "I can't believe," you know, people are saying that they will or won't support a candidate based off of their interactions with supporters. I understand that it does seem petty and childish, and if you weren't online, you would probably not even say that because you wouldn't interact with them enough to to have them have that kind of impact on your opinion, but because of the nature of being always online and so on and so forth, I think that there's a a larger sentiment of like that that's expressed. But then I, from the other side, I also remember Bernie's 2016 campaign when I was first getting interested. And then he had that net roots moment and I saw the vitriol, uh, from a lot of his white supporters towards just black issues generally, not even just mm-hmm. like what took place on that route, uh, that stage. And and then also with the the interruption that followed in Seattle, like not just taking issue at that, but then just vitriol launched towards just black people in general and black issues and the significance and importance of racial issues generally to a platform and, and all those types of things. And it's not so much that like, I wouldn't support Sanders because of them, but it makes me sincerely question the type of revolution that he is uh you know taking a, a leadership position and is it was, it was like what are the revolutionaries within his ilk what kind of revolution are they after mm-hmm. and uh that is one of like that event back in 2016 concerned me some of the things that, though i would say not to the degree for Probably personal reasons because I'm not a woman, so they, didn't, they don't affect me the way that the ones about black people did particularly. But then also, I think the, the level of invective has been toned down generally uh, in some ways, although it's also been escalated in others. Mm-hmm. And so I think the consideration for sexism, I think, is in the forefront of people's mind more so. But I think the kind of the, the, the temperature of the general rhetoric is also raised uh, overall.
0: And I think too, like to add to that, it's not just about like the, it's not even about the woman comment or the the alleged, the alleged woman comment. Um, But I think like what the anger over that symbolizes and how it can be extended to other things. So like you mentioned, like, okay, you're not a woman, but the black stuff bothered you. But like, I think sometimes the, the, the smaller comments can be shorthand for bigger ideas. So, like I said, I saw some people last night saying, you know, like calling this identity politics and whatever. And that terminology has been so distorted within our discussions about race and gender and things like that, sexuality and whatnot on the left as of late, because it's been what's happening is like people on the left are co opting right wing framing of what identity politics means and also neoliberal weaponization of identity politics. And then that is what they're getting angry over. And I've said this since like 2016, 2017, it's very obvious what's going on, but people don't wanna come to terms with it. And to me, it comes across as like a dog whistle. I mean, when I hear it, I know that that's a blanket term to be like, I'm angry at black people, women, gay people, et cetera, her bringing up their issues and not just sticking to class. And that to me is a failure to recognize the way these all intersect with the matters of class. Like The way that, that we deal with economic inequality in this country um, has to also account for the disparities of economic inequality on the basis of these different identity markers. And so like for me, I, I see it not just being a woman, but also see the anger over identity issues in general right you get what i'm saying like they might be just talking about the woman thing but it's like that becomes a like you lasso in all these other groups by being angry about that um and again like i don't i don't know who said what i don't know what went down i wasn't there um i know one person has a history of lying a lot and one person does not um, and I know one person is fighting back against a potential loss in Iowa, and one person is looking at a potential win in Iowa. So these things are have to be taken into account. Um, but I just, I think the response sometimes to these things are angry to the point where I feel like it can be applied to, uh, like, I feel like, I guess what I'm saying is, like, who you're going to be mad at next and why, right? And I Absolutely. think any interruption to that, like, any any discussion of identity gets so like, even if it's like a very basic, like not an angry one, not one that like throws Bernie under the bus, quote unquote, or whatever, just like mentioning it. Some people's response to that is so vitriolic that it, this, this sort of moment triggers that feeling in me. You get what I'm saying? Like, it? I
1: don't know. no, absolutely. And uh, I, I agree totally. And I just mean to just as a point of clarification, I mean to say like, it's easier for me to miss the things that are like, that are aimed directly towards women oh yeah beings, no yeah I think like that yeah enough. i didn't i didn't think so i just i guess for our audience just to clarify uh, okay. but it, the point that you make about how it the anger kind of tags in a bunch of other groups and people with less than savory ideologies or perspectives and like a lot of these hegemonic ideas of isms and such so forth that are just kind of superimposed or also integrated into their what is generally considered more leftist perspective but then mm-hmm. uh, is kind of also tainted with a nationalist and white supremacist oh, yeah. hegemonic kind of uh, ideas and so like one of the other like one of the ways that i think that it was captured really well uh CGP Grey uh who has other issues but they did do a great video on kind of how this process works Uh, It's called uh, the video is called this video will make you angry. You can look up Google angry germ, you'll find it, but uh, it's a great video. I highly recommend people watch it just for generally understanding uh, online interaction, especially, but just also the kind of uh, aspects and concepts that you were describing there with how uh, the kind of anger and vitriol draws in these different groups and then how and why that can be beneficial towards the essentially the opposition oppositional forces to the type of revolutionary energy and ideas that uh I personally at least uh, and I, I think generally a lot of listeners and uh, the the kind of general theme of a lot of the work we do is aimed at and mm-hmm. so like uh the basic to give a basic outline of it quickly is just uh, when the the anger ideas and these arguments spread and incorporate more people than things that we all just agree on or uh, that uh, don't inspire these types of outrageous interactions and don't inspire people to point out you know in their anger they made a comment that offended this group and then draw this group into an argument between these two groups about whether the use of this is uh, uh, you know that there is uh, you know productive and so on and so forth, and draw attention away from the the core disagreement or the core issues that result that need to be resolved in order for uh progress to be made and so with your concern about how uh, this type of vitriol that was uh, expressed by progressives towards Warren also kind of I guess it doesn't just uh like bring them in in the sense that they say these things, but what it also does is they're able to make comments that without the context of who is making the comment sounds like something you agree with, but then any sort of further examination of where that's coming from and why they said that will expose that your agreement with that particular sentiment actually undermines what you're trying to express. Mm-hmm. And is like, I see a lot of that and I, I find myself sometimes find, falling victim to it too. One of the reasons why my Twitter account is usually generally barren just because it's like, it, it's It's an ordeal to really kind of engage with people in that type of way where you don't necessarily recognize or realize that your amplification of their message or whatever they're saying might actually uh, amplify or draw attention to things that you're not trying to draw attention to and expose people that wouldn't have otherwise been exposed to those ideas or that concept, uh, exposed to it and vulnerable to it because it more quickly and readily aligns with their hegemonic beliefs rather than the more radical ideas that you're trying to uh, expose them to.
0: It sounds like, to me, what you're kind of describing is like a rhetorical version of political entryism, you know, where it's like you introduce someone to an idea, it sounds okay, and then you keep introducing them to things that like kind of move further and further to the right, but they've gotten the like little bit where it seems like it's revolutionary, but in actuality, it's like trying to sheepdog you into something that's way more, that's like antithetical to what your beliefs are, Um, but with gradual introduction, you know, to those more unsavory beliefs you start to then like accept well because i mean i see this all the time when i think about like um one of the think about the hill the hills rising right which is a show that i have considerable issues with um but there's a crystal ball is one of the hosts and Sagar and Jetty is another host and he's like a Trump voter, he's a freaking right winger, but sometimes every now and then he says things that like sound a little leftish and so then Crystal Ball will latch onto that and other people will latch onto that and then keep spreading his message. Um and even Crystal Ball herself has in my opinion done this as well where she says things that are like super reactionary but because she has like left bona fides you know, kind of soften that. Um, and it also helps soften what Sakar is saying. And so I think that, yeah, what you're describing is like the online version of this. Um, and I don't know how to remedy it, but it's frustrating to see how many people are susceptible to it because, uh, I, and it's something I've written about, something I've thought about for a long time. I just feel like I'm concerned about what it's going to mean if we get a Sanders presidency.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, because I wonder where is the place for dissent, dissenting voices, um, to things that Sanders may do that others have grown to accept as what has to be done to forward a left agenda, right? Um, like we have to throw immigrants under the bus, or we have to not we have to ignore uh gender or race or whatever, or only talk about race when it comes to criminal justice stuff or what, you know what I'm saying? Like we've Mm -hmm. we've gone over his issues many times, but the issue that the point that I'm trying to make is that my concern always in the back of my mind is if I have to put aside these concerns to express support for someone, which I don't, but I'm saying in general, when you go make a vote, you're kind of doing that, right? Um, What does it look like if he does become president? Who's gonna be in his cabinet? Who's going to be listening to those of us who say this is good, but it could be better, right? How can we make it better if we have an audience of Sanders supporters that try to, at this stage even, consistently downplay where there are problems? What is it? Ha- what happens when he's in power? And how does that revolution sustain itself if the revolution has been kind of absorbed into the presidential process, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. And going a lot instead does the quote unquote revolution then just become a sidearm of government and governance, presidential governance, as opposed to a unit that is meant to challenge the president and change and push him further to the left
1: yeah and i mean uh, social democracy is a demonstrably in market improvement from where we're at now but it also isn't good enough to stave off like climate apocalypse so right. we have to do better <laughs> like and i think uh i don't get the impression from a lot of sanders supporters that they recognize that sanders is far from good enough like not just you know most like not just a little off but the types of Radical change that are necessary in the time frame that we need in order to hopefully save uh, you know hundreds of millions of people and avoid displacing more is uh, it, it's significantly greater than what Bernie Sanders offers, and so like, and I don't think that he's going to magically in his uh, you know at, at this age have a revolutionary train change of thought that leads him to believe that uh, it is so inadequate, although who knows, you know, it could happen. And so Mm. I'm not, I don't rule it out. So, and I try to keep my revolutionary optimism uh, both uh, there, but also in check. But the reality is, is that it's going to take a massive movement of people And a type of engagement that we haven't seen since uh, Vietnam, but it's also important for us to remember just because this was also part of the discourse recently with the lead up to Iran. So I wanted to mention something about it, at least uh, that while the Vietnam protests in themselves didn't end the Vietnam War, the Vietnamese people did that. uh, They did undermine the ability of the American war machine to continue to send more and more bodies onto the front lines by... uh, undermining the draft and preventing that from being both effective and while it was maintained and then also getting it eventually eliminated. But that doesn't mean that then the American military was permanently disabled or uh, unable to be able to effectuate its, uh, imperialist agenda. It just meant that for a moment, it was a, it was, uh, unable to continue that particular track. And so it takes constant and active engagement and at those types of levels and, uh, I would say, well, uh, all protests have served purposes and have value in some ways, uh, that the types of protests that are necessary are also going to be the types of ones that in, resulted in thousands of people getting arrested.
0: Mm-hmm. And,
1: and then I guess with what we saw on the debate stage, the last kind of thing that I'll just say, and with the consideration for all the concerns that laid out, uh, about, uh, what we face. I stay optimistic that there are people out there and that there's a potential and possibility for us to make the kinds of changes. And despite people concerned about the IPC's increasingly alarming uh, warnings about a a 10-year deadline, you can do a lot in 10 years. Uh, The entirety of World War II was fought in less than 10 years. So changing the global uh, kind of uh, direction that we're heading and the type of order that we're under is possible. may take a a global conflict it may not ideally is what I would like to believe and I hope for and continue to push for on a regular basis but I also recognize that the the necessity of doing something radical and revolutionary remains and uh, those that are don't see that at least in that moment are oppositional to me and from my view
0: listen my baby just kicked an agreement so (laughs) <laughs> I, think she, I think she's on your side with this one. I was like, what are you doing? She's like kicking away right now. Um, but yeah, I, I agree with all of that. And I think those are important considerations for us to keep in mind, um, especially as we move forward. And especially, you know, this is going to be, a. Re- I can already tell, this is going to be a really ugly campaign season. Um, people need to keep their wits about them. People need to continue to dissent. People need to continue to bring up issues. Um, and regardless of where you fall in this kind of like endless war of, I don't know, like whatever we define as progressivism in the United States. I mean, I just hope that people continue to move left and recognize that presidential politics, electoral politics in general, and the candidates themselves are not the end all be all of what we're trying to do as a, as like a collective, right? With leftist intentions. Um, and I think sometimes, you know, there's a, there's a really constantly raging debate about whether voting is worth it or not. I think it is, um, but that doesn't mean that I disrespect those who choose not to vote for whatever reason. I understand that, you know, there's a degree of frustration um, and disillusionment with the government and what it does and how it also, like, weaponizes voting. And fill in the blank. There are all sorts of, like, really valid reasons why people choose not to vote, so I don't disrespect that. Um, but I do think that whatever your method of challenging the system, questioning the system, even cooperating with the system in hopes of changing it, whatever that may be. Um, I respect it. And I think that people have to really embrace um, that we have to, we're have. we all going to have different methods of doing this um, and enacting, trying to enact change. And um, I think in, in light of how I can already tell how ugly it's going to be, I just really hope that like I don't know. I hope that people find the humanity within themselves and others to like recognize that the prize here, the main focus should be getting these basic needs met and accomplishments met um, by any means necessary. And, you know, being be it healthcare care or um, voters rights or environmental stuff or right like so many other rights and things that people have been fighting for for a very long time. I just think that sometimes people lose focus on the issues when they get so wrapped up in the candidates themselves and the drama and fighting about that. Like, if you want to come into my timeline and defend one candidate or another that I'm critical of, that's fine. But recognize that, like, that's not where my focus is, and I really don't care which candidate you stand over another. I, it does. It's not relevant to me. What's relevant to me is making sure that the issues we need to to have addressed are addressed. Um, and if you're in favor of one candidate that I'm not, that's your business. But you coming to complain to me about my feelings on whatever is not necessarily going to push. Like it's, it's not going to move the needle on the issues. It's just you venting, which, mm-hmm. you, but I, I've said over and over, like I'm not getting involved with the Bernie and Warren drama. I have my feelings on Warren. I have my feelings on Bernie. I express, you know, like, I express express grievances about both of their campaigns, about both of them as people. Um, And I mainly express those grievances when I feel like they are failing to prioritize the issues that we need to have addressed, right? Like, that's when I say something. I don't care about them as people. They're not my mother, father, relative, I don't give a shit. Like, I don't care about them as people. It's not Amo Bernie for me, right? He's not my uncle, my cousin, nor is Elizabeth Warren. Um, So it's, not personal for me. It's about making sure that the issues we need to have addressed are addressed and properly so and done in a way that doesn't leave anyone behind. And, you know, I think that they both fail at that sometimes. And I'm going to say it. If you have a problem with it, just know that your focus is, in in my opinion, in the wrong place because you're focusing on the person and the cult of personality around that person and not about the people because that's where your focus needs to be um yeah sorry <laughs> just like i get angry about it because i'm like this is so petty and stupid and like i don't know yeah. Like, we're without freaking health care and you're fighting about stupid stuff you know it just feels really uh, not, it feels disproportionate is what i'm saying
1: yeah i mean uh, part uh, like there is some selfish motivation for my uh from my perspective in general from for me personally but the selfishness is in like not be- being able to or not wanting to or desiring to have on my conscience the the weight of what we what i like our political system is doing, and so the only way I can do that is by fighting with every ounce that I can summon, and so that's what I do and it's not always it's not I don't feel like it's always enough or that it, it's going to make all the difference or anything like that, but it's the only way that I can continue to you know to exist in this system is to know that I'm doing what I can to undermine the most uh, horrific aspects of it and where I can and how I can and uh, recognize when I'm failing. And if I can't correct it immediately, at least uh, try to address it in a way that is in line with the, the underlying beliefs. And so it's, it's a selfish motivation, but it is, it's for, Uh, The considerations of all the people uh, around me, I don't want to see anyone suffer. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. so like, uh, because I know what suffering feels like for me, and even if it's not the same suffering as other people that go through for a variety of reasons. And I know that there's a pathway that could lead me towards relative comfort within the system that sacrifices all those people and there's a pathway that leads to lots of discomfort within the system but doesn't just openly and willingly sacrifice those people even if it fails to to provide the type of uh sanctuary that i think we all deserve uh, it's the righteous course in my view and so that that's that's where i go and so like uh, I agree with you, you know, a lot of people are going to find different pathways there, but the central focus is not the individual uh, representatives that become the cult's personality in one way or another, but the uh, the issues and the humanity of all the people that are suffering under a system that generates trillions of dollars uh, worth of value, yet can't seem to feed, you know, clothes, shelter, and provide basic medical care for the people that are providing all of that generated wealth by doing the the laborious work it takes to gen- generate, create and distribute it. And so it's like we've we got to do better and we can do better. We just have to genuinely uh, work towards it in a way that sacrifices some uh, things that we've come accustomed to that were built off the exploitation of the people that, we're tr- that we want to uh, I guess uh, the word I'm looking for is join in their liberation.
0: Mm -hmm. I agree 100%. Well, Richard, thank you so much as per usual for speaking with me about your thoughts on the debate um, and just your thoughts in general, your philosophical political thoughts and where we kind of go from here. Um, I look forward to having these discussions with you later, of course, as the campaign ramps up. Um, Or the election ramps up. And then also, obviously, we're going to continue to have our discussions for as long as I can, at least um, for Reading Revolution and for our basic interviews um, with activists and academics about histories of leftists of color. Um, As per usual, you can find both of us online, but you can definitely find the project by going on Twitter, Facebook whatever social media platform you use and searching for left POC and that's L E F T POC. Um, depending on time and my energy or like the availability of guests, we're going to continue to have this discussion about the 2020 race. Um, because both of us recognize its importance, um, not just for Americans, but also like America's place in the world and what that looks like. Um, you know, again, kind of measuring it based on the best of the worst, but, um, and hoping for something that is change, that's change making instead of keeping the status quo. Um, the other thing I should mention too, is just, if you have a chance, you know, make sure that you check out the other episodes of the podcast, share, like, subscribe, tell a friend, tell a family member, tell a colleague to check us out, um, continue your support through whatever means it may manifest. Um, and, uh, yeah, thank you all so much for listening. Thank you for hanging on with us and, uh, we'll see you next time. Bye.
1: Thank you.